there are very few deals that are, you know, perfect. For every buyer, there is a seller. For every market, there is a group that thinks the market has reached its peak, and there's a group that think it thinks it has runway to go. At the end of the day, our investors uh, challenge us to have the conviction and the track record to find great opportunities and execute on. This is Durable Value. Get investing and business insights from industry experts and successful entrepreneurs every week. Like and subscribe now. Today, we decided we want to talk a little bit about our strategy and how we got to there, how we've developed our strategy over time and through the experiences that we've had. I thought I'd start by talking about what is our strategy. We're focused on institutionalizing secondary markets. We're very much a relationship-driven company. We're focused on adding value, doing it in a creative manner. And I'd say kind of a a tactical aspect of what we do is uh, we focus on multi-tenant properties and we focus on private owners, owners that have owned properties for a long time. So maybe we can speak a little bit about how did we get to there? How did we get from uh, where we were before to the strategy that we employ today? Mm -hmm. Well, I I think I would start by saying we're a relationship-based company and many of the properties we buy, almost all of them are off market. And buying properties off market is a six to 18 month process. And often the sellers we buy from are, we are repeat sellers. Um, we prove to be a great buyer for them. We treat them well. Um, we do what we say we're going to do and we pay a fair price. Um, often we buy properties that have been owned by families for a very long time. And their vision of why they would want to exit the property is very well aligned to why we might think it's a great opportunity. Um, often, Properties, whether they be industrial or multifamily, have been managed in the way that a family would manage them if they if they'd owned them and managed them for cash flow for a very long time, and um, were able to buy them and uh, execute more precisely and create additional value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the other aspects of our strategy is is focusing on kind of that secondary tertiary market and. How we got there is, is uh, I think, fairly straightforward but interesting. We uh, were both born and raised in Modesto, California, um, Central Valley of California, which is definitely a secondary or tertiary market. And Pretty uh, tertiary. Pretty tertiary, definitely. <laughs> and I remember when we started our business, we were focused on third-party property management, third-party brokerage. We were helping other people with their kind of larger 10 to $50 million assets in our geography. And what we found is the, the clients that um, we worked for typically were based in L.A., San Francisco, New York. Um, these were out-of-area owners in our markets. And I think somewhere along the way, it really clicked in our minds that there is no one doing that value add that we're, we're providing for other owners out of the area. There's no one doing that value add based in the market. Mm-hmm. They're coming in from out, out, of, out of the market, out of the area. And that, for, for me at least, was a, a real eye-opener that um, being in the market, knowing the market well, being able to uh, know aspects and nuances of assets and geographies, that someone out of the area just doesn't know. And I think as we, as we grow, 
Um, that's been something that that um, has resonated a lot with our strategy is being deeply entrenched in those markets and knowing those markets and developing that over time. I'd see a little bit different. I think we are a um, tremendous partner for local brokers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I personally, I was a broker for 10 years and what I experienced is that every broker over time has a few incredible deals in their lifetime or a few incredible deals every few years. Uh, my goal is to find those incredible off-market leads that a broker gets only once every few years and be the trusted partner that gets the call to get that deal. Mm -hmm. A a key part of our strategy is our culture and our ability to make decisions. One of the joys of being a business founder and having taken the company to this part is you have the authority and the credibility to develop a tremendous conviction muscle which is to know when you believe in a thing and to have the credibility within the organization and with it, with your investors to channel the company to attack that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are very few deals that are, you know, perfect. For every buyer, there is a seller. For every market, there is a group that thinks the market has reached its peak and there's a group that think it, thinks it has runway to go. At the end of the day, our investors uh, challenge us to have the conviction and the track record to find great opportunities and execute on them. So yeah. uh, what I enjoy about this job and what I think our greatest calling is, is the courage to point to a thing, a deal, uh, mm-hmm. a city, a town, a secondary mm-hmm. or tertiary market and say, we're going there. I believe and I'm willing to stake my reputation and my career and my track record on let's go here and here's the 10 reasons why. Yeah. And then investment committee can push back. They can yeah. they can say no, but I enjoy the uh, the responsibility and the authority to say I believe we should do this. Yeah, and and we're dealing in a space that by its very nature is contrarian. We're operating in secondary and tertiary markets. So the 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 whole area where we operate is by its nature contrarian. And so kind of developing and refining that contrarian muscle is a really important aspect of what we do. Yeah. Because we can't focus or we can't rely on broad market trends and themes that are broadly accepted by others because we're already in a space that we have conviction around the long-term growth and the merits, but it is absolutely not a, um, you know, it's not a broadly accepted paradigm. Yeah. They say companies reflect their owners. I believe our team reflects, is a reflection of us. And I believe the number one reason to invest with us is us and the founder uh, ethos and X factor that comes with what we've built. Many of the, Competitors we compete with uh, have been around for two or three generations. They're large companies. They're run by committees. They're run by professional managers. And we, we are professional managers, but, but we also are gritty founders because we had to build something from scratch. And these days, we're professional managers, but we had to be gritty founders first. And because of that, we have that drive or that scrappy nature that uh, I think gives us a piece of edge over our, our competitors. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of our team 
is I would call uh, refugees from large institutions. <laughs> and, and when I say that, what I mean is uh, these are folks who they have been at Shorenstein, they've been at JLL, they've been at John Hancock, they've been at these large organizations who execute very well at what they do, but they lack the culture and the care and the ability for that exceptional, exceptionally talented person to be who they are. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of tying this back to our strategy, one of our focuses is being institutional in everything that we do. And so it's, it's an interesting juxtaposing that grittiness of growing a company from the ground up with the sophistication of institutional, you know, best practices. And, and you kind of get a little bit of the best of both worlds because the people that we have um, been able to attract into our organization are exceptional. They're world-class. And we learn from that. Our organization, every time we have a new hire, we're not doing our job well if every time we have a new hire, we're not learning something new from that person. Yeah. And where the culture is around, when I say institutional or when we say institutional, we mean best in class, best in class. So we have the opportunity or we have the ability and in fact, we do act in an institutional way, but we have an entrepreneurial, a founder's mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what serves us, serves our investors, because we can deliver their needs at an institutional scale and sophistication, but we can achieve results that come with uh, that, yeah. that founder's mindset. Well, and, and you know, some of the strategies we employ, you know, dynamic rent pricing, you know, green auditing, artificial intelligence and HVAC, you know, there's a whole slew of kind of what I'd call tools or arrow, you know, arrows in the quiver that are, that we employ on properties because of the, you know, background expertise, knowledge that we and our team members have. Yeah. So we're able to employ these very, you know, sophisticated tools in what we do. And it ultimately allows us to yield better results than would another kind of local boots on the ground operator competitor. But we also have the flexibility and the entrepreneurialness to be able to allow those new ideas, those new thoughts to rise to the surface without being pushed down by a more kind of top-down bureaucratic larger organization. Do you want to talk a little bit about one of the other aspects of our strategy is a, I would say, a preference toward multi-tenant or highly multi-tenant properties, which is a little bit, you know, counterintuitive in the in kind of the, the broader institutional market. It's large floor plates, credit tenants, easy to manage, you know, uh, long lease durations. We have a tendency and a preference toward multi-tenant. How, how did that evolve? And, sure. and, you know, why do we like that? Well, we're trying to manage supply and demand in secondary markets. Uh, we're also trying to uh, maintain a defensive posture as a landlord. Yeah. So we're looking for uh, areas where, as a landlord, we have an advantage. 
These tend to be uh, lower TI properties. Uh, often that's industrial or multifamily. These tend to be uh, very multi-tenant properties where there isn't a tenant or two or three that can break us. Um, we look for properties where we can create a community where we can improve the overall asset in such a way that the network of tenants, apartment, office, retail, industrial, is enhanced by the overall asset and the community that's created there. Mm-hmm. Um, we are experts at um, creating leadership within a community. And that means leading with capital so that the asset uh, is improved, that it's a great place to be. Uh, that means leading with communication and connecting with tenants in such a way that they feel like, oh, this building is well-led. This is the kind of place I want to be. Mm-hmm. If a light goes out, I know who to call. And I know it will be fixed. Um, and, and then once we've created that community, once we've led with capital and developed the asset, and, and once we've worked with tenants that are in a community, not where they're the boss, but where they're in a community and being in a community is important for them, now we can... Uh, now we have pricing power. Yeah, not to be unfair, but to yeah. to value what we have created. Yeah, I mean that is that is fundamentally what we do. We we make the community better, and we uh, reflect that in the price, and it's a fair deal. Yeah, and I'd say kind of getting to where where uh, this strategy evolved, um, particularly in the office market, I would say this strategy was. Um, I don't know, crystallized during COVID. Because during COVID, uh, a few things we learned, we looked at our office portfolio and we have some properties that have large tenancies and other properties that have a lot of small tenancies. And we looked at our portfolio and the properties that performed the best through, you know, if you, if you pick an asset class that was most stressed by COVID outside of hotels, it was probably office. <laughs> Everybody left. They were gone. And so you look at an asset class that had this r- large external shock to it. And the, the assets that performed well in that environment were the highly multi-tenant. Those are the ones that um, a lot of times you're not dealing with credit tenancies. You're dealing with mom and pops. You're dealing with smaller regional companies, some national. But those are the companies that had a stronger need to be operating in the most effective way possible and in the markets where we serve you're not dealing with long commute times you're not dealing with high cost of real estate you have all these factors that that make people more comfortable getting back in the office but these multi-tenant properties allowed us optionality if we had one tenant that's growing and expanding we can accommodate that we have another tenant that's downsizing or moving out we can accommodate that when you have these large floor plate single tenancies or a few large floor plate tenants much harder to be flexible in, in that environment that's we we prefer flexibility over kind of rigidity in our uh, investments mm-hmm. the other thing that we noticed is uh, we have uh, an asset that we're getting to full stabilization right now that involved a heavy ti component we bought the building 33% occupied. We're getting it up to the you know 80, 80, high 80% occupancy level. It's been a big lift. And one of the things that we found is with inflation, construction costs keep going up. And so we have a preference now 
for properties where we will have where that construction risk, that construction cost risk, is lower. Where, like you mentioned, lower TIs, generally the the overall need is not as high, and so we're not out to risk on construction costs. Ultimately, I think we move to a multi-tenant investing strategy for the sleep at night factor. Um, as you as you do this more and more, you just quickly learn what works well and what doesn't work well. The things that were hanging up our organization, and frankly, the challenges we deal with today are large tenants with tremendous power within buildings that choose to flex that on every single renewal. And then we would have these other buildings where we had lots of smaller tenants, and yeah, we had a lot of uh, renewals and extra work. I wouldn't call it extra work, but um, those were very smooth. We had tremendous pricing power, we had leverage, they didn't want to move. Um, it went really well. And so f- to scale an organization and deliver the types of returns we do over and over and over again, we found it worked great to work with uh, lots of smaller tenants uh, with buildings that were uh, compelling and in great locations where tenants wanted to be. What, what makes multi-tenant buildings work is location and quality of asset. Uh, as I've said, you're creating a community and for smaller tenants that aren't national tenants, but are regional tenants, um, they want to be in great locations and they want to be amongst other great tenants. And over the next, I mean, next few years, and certainly for the last few years, we've sought to buy higher and higher quality buildings. It, it's in those buildings where our style, our leadership piece, our capital piece uh, is mo- most effective and leads to the greatest uh, outcomes uh, and returns. What we really uh, enjoy in our strategy is uh, a dynamic environment where there's different uh, sub-markets within a larger market that play together in different ways. And often we're able to find value in the transitions. Um, That's worked well for us both in the Bay Area and in Sacramento. And as we looked at other secondary markets that fit that model, we saw Greater Denver and um, are currently in the process of acquiring um, some assets there. Uh, Personally, I really like that... uh, between Fort Collins and Colorado Springs and uh, the, the smaller towns in between, there's a lot of similarity to how Sacramento works, commute times, quality of assets, uh, little micro markets within the major market. And that sort of, that, that favors us. We're not a CBD group where we like that uh, secondary and uh, you know, third wave out from the city. So um, I look forward to that going well. Yeah, and, and, you know, in using the East Bay as an example, people think of Oakland, Alameda, you know, San Jose. Um, we like operating in Martinez, Walnut Creek, Livermore, Vacaville. And so as we look into the Colorado market, you know, again, it's kind of these aspects of the market that are less developed it's not the Boulder Colorados of the world. It's the Greeleys and the Fort Collins and the Auroras that, uh, where we find interest. And that's, again, just based on our experience in the Central Valley. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Durable Value, an investor's podcast, where we demystify commercial real estate with safe, sound investment strategies to help you balance your portfolio. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, visit grisadapartners.com, where you'll find more information, investors' tools, case studies, and more. 
This podcast is hosted by Joe Miratori and Ryan Suela. It's produced, edited, and mixed by Melodic, with intro music by Ian Post. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.